Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, hey, we are in the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back we'd love to give away. You can keep it if you want. Uh, We're going to be Matthew 18. We're not going to have it on the screen, so phone or Bible is probably your best option. And um, we are finishing today this beautiful chapter in Matthew 18, which is all about relationships. And we've been going through Matthew for a very long time, and as Jesus is is, uh, taking his final journey to Jerusalem, where he will be executed and a lot of stuff will go down at the end of Matthew. He's, he's teaching his disciples about relationships. And uh, what's funny about Matthew 18 is a lot of times we, we use it in the context of like confrontation and, and dealing with conflict and, and, and bad things. But Matthew 18, really what it's, it's highlighting is the beauty of the gospel, and that's forgiveness. And that's what we're talking about today. The last part of Matthew 18 is all about forgiveness. And I think that there's no greater gospel symbol or fruit than forgiveness, than the than forgiveness, and then our ministry as followers of Jesus, which is reconciliation with people and people to God. And uh, Jesus, what he's doing is this is all started by disciples pursuing the vanity and influence of the world. So they're on their way to Jerusalem, they're hanging out, chatting, and Peter comes up to Jesus and he's like, "Hey, which one of us will be the greatest? Right? Which one of us is the greatest? Will be the greatest?" Because if they're to take Jesus' words serious about his impending death that he's told them about twice, then they know, okay, like, someone's going to take over, or maybe this whole thing will fizzle, or if it does work out, who's going to get, like, authority, and what kind of influence will we get, and who will get to make the decisions, and all that type of stuff, and forgetting that he said he'd rise again. They just remember the dying part, and they're asking him that, and Jesus, if, if, if you've been following with us, if not, he just puts a child in front of them. He's like, become like this, and they're like, that's weird. You know, I'm an adult. I can't become a little five-year-old, and I you want me to like, I'm, I'm already taller, so like, how do I do that? And what he's referring to is the social status of a child, that a child essentially submits to the authority in the culture around them. Like if you're a child, whether you're a toddler and you don't want to, you still have to kind of submit to your parents, right? Like they lead you and they guide you and they parent you. And he's saying uh, to lower yourself in such a way that you're not pursuing being the most important person in the room, that you're not just consumed with influence and and pride, and selfishness, and vanity, that, that when you lower yourself as a child, you'll start to see the kingdom in its real real stages. And, and that's, that's the reality of the kingdom that Jesus is painting. If you know, he's, we talk about the phrase, the upside-down kingdom, like he takes the world as we know it, and he just like flips all the power structures upside down. That's what becoming a child does. It's knowing that children have very little influence, they have very little power, um, they need to be protected, right? Like, they are willingly giving themselves over to, to, the, to the, the, the world. And so he says, become like little children. And then right after that, he knows the reality of becoming like a little child is setting yourself up to be taken advantage of, to be vulnerable. Um, And in that, there's beauty, but a lot of times the world is the world. And if you leave people alone long enough, they make bad decisions, they manipulate, they abuse, etc. So he's like, I will handle with them severely. If somebody causes one of you little ones to stumble, better for me to put a millstone around their neck and throw them in the ocean, right? Like it's serious. And then if anyone in that little one group is, is struggling with sin, they need to cut it off immediately because if they keep letting it fester, it will not only affect themselves, but the community around them. So Jesus says, become a little one, but there'll be stumbling blocks, and I will, I know they're coming, like hold fast, trust that I am in this. And then the last part of that passage is 
how when people are to wander off or to kind of struggle, that we're to go out, our call is to go out and to shepherd them and to love them. Not just my job, but all of our job as a church family. And so after that, then, then it gets into the question of, okay, how do we have those conversations, right? How do we confront people on sin or wandering, right? And we talked about how Jesus is not acting like confrontation is optional, how it's essential to become like him is to confront the sin and the realities of the world. That if we never confront anyone about anything, we're actually failing as disciples of Jesus and as a family of Jesus. If your parents fail to confront you about anything when you were a toddler, you'd still be a toddler today. You'd just be able to drive a car, (laughs) right? So confrontation is a good thing. The problem is, is that many of us have experienced bad confrontation. We've seen manipulation, we've seen abuse, we've seen anger, or we've tried to confront someone, but we feel ill-equipped, or we don't, it's the wrong medium, or maybe we feel so convicted and guilty of our own sin that it's hard for us to like want to pursue finding the light in someone else's life because we are like guilty about our own sin, right? So we have all these reasons and Jesus kind of gives us this formula of like, look, confrontation is to happen. Now, last week when I talked about that, I challenged you to think about people that might, you might need to confront or confrontations that went wrong that you need to address. This week, if those went poorly, this week is on forgiveness. So how fitting if you went into Thanksgiving and you're like, I'm going to talk to my grandma and it didn't go well. Now you can ask for forgiveness after today. So you're welcome. It'll be in line with that. But it, it's, it's no wonder that Matt, uh, Peter, in verse 21, if you look, is, is, is questioning about forgiveness. Because he knows that the reality of confrontation, the reality of this kingdom that Jesus is creating, which is a kingdom of right relationships, require forgiveness. Because we will all wrong each other at some point. If you stick around here long enough, I will say something stupid, I promise you. They have a file of it on the computer of things I've said on Sundays. You stick around long enough, Okay. If you stick around long enough, I'll probably hear you say something dumb or you do something dumb, right? Like, it's the nature of family, okay? You can only put your best foot forward so long. You can only, like, date your family and be impressive for so long until we see you fail, okay? That, and that's okay. So what do we do, like, when we have to ask for forgiveness and reconcile relationships? That's what today is about. And so before Peter asks this question that we're going to get into, though, there's numbers in this story that are really symbolic, and so we're going to read Genesis 4 first. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis 4, fourth chapter of the Bible. We're getting into it. Adam and Eve, sin, the fall, they're kicked out. They have a family. Cain and Abel are, are the kiddos. They're, not, they're, they're quarreling because Cain gives this half-butt sacrifice to the Lord, and he's like, this is not as good as Abel's. And then Cain gets mad, and Cain kills Abel. Murder right away, right? Four chapters in, people are killing each other. Is it any surprise? And... After Cain does this, God kind of reassures him in verse 15 because Cain's worried that he's going to be killed. If he gets, he, God sends him out and he's like, if I get sent out, people are going to find me and they're going to kill me. So God says this in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, all right, then if anyone kills Cain, Cain will be avenged seven times as much. Then the Lord put a special mark on Cain so that no one who found him would strike him down. The word seven often means perfection in the Hebrew. It's this idea of completeness. So God's like, I will avenge them to the complete severity if they touch you. And so the Lord uses this as an illustration of his right to avenge people. It is his right, not ours and not others. And so he uses this idea of seven. And then only a few verses later, Cain does go off with the mark or whatever on his head or whatever. He starts a city. And then a couple um, generations down, we have this guy named Lamech which his name, I feel like, is fitting to who he is. He's the first guy to marry two wives. He's kind of a cocky punk. And um, he brags about himself, and it made it in the Bible. How great is that? And so he is literally, in verse 23, says this. 
Lamech said, which Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. You wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for hurting me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times as much, then Lamech 77 times. 77 times. He's basically like, look, like you think seven's bad. Man, 77. I, I gave it even worse. Like, I, now, some scholars would say 7, 7 is actually 490, but either way, it's 77. It's a lot, okay? A lot of revenge. A lot of times of revenge. And what we see here and what the Jewish people inundate themselves in in this scripture and then knowing this story is that there, there's this justification of humans being able to avenge people for wrongdoing, right? That, like, whenever something bad happens in our life or a loved one, like, we, we just intrinsically want revenge. We think we know fairness, and we, we want to uh, make it right or even go above and beyond, right? Like, what's fair? We, we want them to hurt more than we've hurt. And to be honest, what I'm describing is just every soap opera ever. <laughs> it's like one person does something bad, and then there's 35 seasons of, like, revenge and more revenge, right? One thing, and then it's all bad, right? Like, name a show that's not just that. One bad sin, everybody wants to get even, and it's a constant battle of keeping score and, and righting wrongs on their own accord. If you've been married for more than three months, you know this is a terrible way to live life. If you just keep score, you have like a little scoreboard in your pocket, and you're like, oh, you said that, check, all right, and you, you keep track. It's a terrible idea. It never goes well. There's two reasons. One is that like, you think that your relationship is based on, what is it? Like, if it, you're both at 10, then it's fair, then everything's good. That's not true. You're going to want to have more, you're going to want it to be more fair on your end, or you're going to want, you're going to treat them differently if they're, if they're lower, right? If they've, if they've done more bad things, then you can hold your love, withhold it, and, and be conditional. The other thing that it does is it does not promote oneness. It promotes sides, and then you're, there's only one winner, right? You're battling, and you're not winning as one. You're fighting, right? And only one person wins. It does not promote oneness. It does not promote right relationship. And so what is going to happen in this scripture is Jesus is just giving his heart for the priority of right relationships in his community of believers. If we are not willing to reconcile, if we are keeping score, if we are loving conditionally, if we are holding people at a standard that we probably invented ourselves, right? Like at the end of the day, fairness is, not, fairness is almost always subjective right? If you've ever been, like, if you sit down and you were to counsel two people and they're arguing about, like, what's fair, like, it's just hard to find an objective fairness, right? You're like, well, he never cleans the dishes. Well, you never take the trash out. Well, how many times do take the trash out equal one doing the dishes, right? Like, it's just ridiculous. And so Jesus is like, look, get rid of that. And that's what is said in this language. Peter comes and says to him in verse 21, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? Now, this is a pretty good ask. I mean, Peter, most times when he asks Jesus a question, it's assumed that the disciples are dealing with this, and Peter is like the mouthpiece. They all want to know, right? So they're like arguing, and you think about this group of people that Jesus put together. It's 12 guys. Some are friends. Some are enemies, and they just, Jesus just puts them all together. The author of Matthew is a tax collector. He's hated by Jewish people because he kind of manipulates the system for the sake of Rome and himself. So he has, he has willingly stole from these guys... Now he's in community with them. I'm sure there were plenty of arguments along the way, right? Imagine if you got the people you like couldn't stand the most, and then you went on like a three-day hike with them. Like you're gonna have some stuff to confront, right? And that's what they're doing. Jesus just walks around places, and they're just walking together. And it's, he'll get ahead of them, and they start punching each other and arguing, and right. And then they're like, "Who's the greatest?" Right? It, it's no surprise that this is happening. And Peter is like, "Okay, how many times do I need to forgive Matthew because he's been a jerk 
and I'm sick of him, and I want to be able to like withhold my forgiveness at some point. And so he says, how about seven times? Seven times the number of perfection, right? Seven is far more than enough, right? I don't know about you, but if you seven times is a lot of forgiveness. Sometimes we go to like two or three, and there's a rabbinic tradition in this, this time period that the rabbis would say three was enough. Three was far generous enough. One or two, and eh, you're being a little tight, nodded, but three, if you, if you forgive someone up to three times, like, then good on you. Like, that's as far as you need to go. And so Peter's like, I'm going to say seven. And then Jesus would be like, no, no, three or five, right? Like, he's thinking, I'm going to overshoot it. And then that way Jesus will, will get, it'll, it'll be impressive, right? Like, seven times? Like, and, and if you notice, it's, it's also relative to Genesis 4, right? God says, I will avenge him seven times. So, so Peter's like, surely seven, right? Seven's enough. And what does Jesus say in response? He says, not seven times, I tell you, but 77 times. Seventy. Seven times. If you remember in, Gen- in Genesis, Cain is to be avenged seven times as much than Lamech, 77 times. And this is Jesus, once again, doing what we call the upside-down kingdom. He's taking a principle that the world has leaned into, uh, which is 77 times of revenge, and he flips it to 77 times of forgiveness. He's saying, you have been abundantly uh, generous in your revenge. Like, you have just, you duel it out with anyone you want. And I'm telling you to flip the entire script and not only to just forgive, but to forgive generously, to forgive unlimitedly is basically what he's saying. He's basically saying, if you're keeping score, you're wrong. If you're keeping track, because 77 is a lot. Like, are you keeping Italian? Well, that's 33. Only 40 more. I was thinking about practically, like, if you're married, you have a, you have a roommate, like, 77 times is two and a half straight months of every day them just like doing something terrible and you having to seek forgiveness. It's ridiculous. That's the entire like season, fall in Columbus. Like just the whole time, every day you wake up and your partner's just like screwing up. You're like, oh. But, but like, so to keep track would be ludicrous, right? You just would not do it. And, and he's saying this because we know that Jesus has an incredibly high bar of forgiveness. Way back when he gave his first like teaching to the people, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter six, he, he gives the Lord's Prayer and he says, this is how you pray. Um, our Father who art in heaven, how be thy name, and you know that. And then at the end, he says, for if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now that's a pretty bold claim, right? Like there's, there's a severity there that like we get nervous. We're like, oh, I thought like nothing could separate us from the love of God and uh, except forgiveness. or It's very confusing, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but but what, what, is really, what, what Jesus is really getting at here is that the heart of what we have been pursuing is, is just trying to right our own wrongs. Like we, are, we want to be in control of the ramifications of if people wrong us, we believe that we have a, like a, a right to make things right or to, to become fair or to, to reciprocate in the same level, whatever it may be. And, and, and the beauty of what Jesus is going to get at here in this next parable, and this is the end of Matthew 18, is that all of this idea is rooted in forgiveness. And that, like I said, forgiveness is the most beautiful fruit of the gospel. Forgiveness is the gospel. And so Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples, unlimitedly forgive because I said so. He's telling them because they've already experienced unlimited forgiveness. And that you, you give unlimitedly out of the unlimited forgiveness that you've received. And that's what we get to in this parable, if you look in verse 23, for this reason, so he's tying, this is why I said 77, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he's created, is like a king 
who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And as he began settling his accounts, a man who owed 10,000 talents was brought to him. Again, I'll just pause here. You're like, Trey, what's a talent? Right? Like he had a lot of skills, right? Like, no. Uh, Money. A lot of money. I'm a math guy. I wanted to figure out exactly how much. 10,000 talents. um, So one talent is equal to... Spoiler, here we go. 6,000... Uh, 6,000 denarii. And a denarii was like your typical day work. So like if you worked like, let's just say low tier in, like, in logistics or you worked at like McDonald's or maybe a gas station or like just like a low tier, like just base level job, right? Because that was what most people had back then. It was very normal. Um, you would make one denarii a day and one talent was 6,000 denarii. If you want any scale of the, how big a talent was, it was like 75 pounds, I believe, of, of gold or silver, depending. And the tabernacle was built, the tabernacle, beautiful tabernacle with 29 talents, and he owes 10,000 talents. So if you did the math, 10,000 talents is 60 million denarii, which means that if you were to work one denarii each day, it would take you 164,000 years to pay it off, which would not even, like, who knows if the world will even be around then, right? So I, I, I quantify that to today's, like, math. If you made, you know, like, 15 bucks an hour, 18 bucks an hour, something like that, you'd owe like $10 billion. So unless you own most of Apple, like you can't pay this off. And this guy we see is a slave. Now a slave in this time, it's best translated slave, but we, we think of like slave as like not making any money, not having any rights. That's not really true. It would be like an assistant or like a, like a, a higher end servant and because he, he, is able, he's, he has authority over other ser- slaves. So don't think like he has no money. He's incurred a debt because he's just been ridiculous. Now, what I started to think about is, what kind of guy gets 10,000 talents in debt? Like, what a doofus. Like, was he, like, betting? Was he going to casinos? Like, how do you spend 10,000 talents? And then I'm like, I'm like, how does the Lord give away 10,000 talents, right? It's ridiculous. Why does the Lord just keep giving him over money? So the point of this is that he has an insane amount of debt. It's funny, there's actually kind of a joke in the scripture, in the Greek, the word 10,000 is myria, which we, where we get our word myriad, like a myriad of things, right? It's the largest numeral for which a Greek term exists. And then a talent is the largest known amount of money. So it's the two largest things you can think of, literally just put together. So one commentator said, it's the effect of like saying a gazillion. It just owed, and it didn't even matter. It was just an insane amount of money. At some point, you just stop counting, right? And... He owes, this, he owes this insane amount of money. And then in verse 25, because he was not able to repay, you don't say, <laughs> the Lord ordered him to be sold along with his wife, children, and whatever he possessed in the repayment to be made. Now, I mean, that is not even going to cover a fraction of that, right? But he's going he's to basically hand him over to jail, jail him because he owes his debt. Then the slave threw himself to the ground before him, saying, be patient with me and I will repay you everything. What a ridiculous claim, right? You're not going to pay me everything. Like, you make a denarii a day at best. Like, your, your kids, 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 kids are not going to repay me. Like, you got no chance. And so the Lord, it says, had compassion. That's the same word we, that Jesus used when he had compassion on people. It's this gut feeling. They thought your heart back then was, your mind and your heart were kind of like, now we think, we know our brain is what has our feelings, but it's just kind of a different process in our brain. But they thought it was your, your gut, basically. Your gut had this feeling, this weight. He had a gut compassion on his slave and released him and also forgave him the debt. Forgave it completely, which is just ridiculous. How much money, and that's foolish on the Lord's part to forgive that debt. 
After he went out, this same slave who owed the massive debt found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred silver coins or a hundred denarii. So this guy owes him like three months' work, which in our terms would be like ten to twenty thousand dollars. So it's like a car loan or like you want to go to grad school and your friend you know paid for you. It's it's doable. It's doable to pay off whether it's a couple years or like you'll pay it off in your lifetime. It's very doable. Okay, and this is one six hundred thousandth of the man's debt. So the man who owed 10,000 talents, this is one six hundred thousandth of the debt that he just got forgiven. I don't even know what that is in a decimal, but it's a lot of zeros and then some numbers. I mean, it's, it is silly. And so what does he do? He grabs him by the throat, starts choking him, saying, pay back what you owe me. Then his fellow slave threw himself down and begged him. He says the exact same thing. Be patient with me and I will repay you, which is possible, Right. But he refused. Instead, he went out and he threw him in prison until he repaid the debt, which is just silly because if you want your debt to be paid off, you don't put the man who can make money in jail. His family's not going to make the debt. He's going to be stuck in there forever and you're never going to get your debt paid back. It's just you trying to make right what you can't make right. And you're like, I'm just going to throw you in jail, which is silly. He throws him in jail. Uh, and, and then his fellow slaves in verse 31 saw what had happened. They became very upset and went and told their Lord everything that had taken place. Then his Lord called the first slave and said to him, Evil slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have shown mercy to your fellow slave, just as I have showed you? In the anger, his Lord turned him over to prison guards to torture him until he repaid all he owed, which he won't repay it. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. Now, I think you can probably get where this parable is going. It has this implication that you have had a massive debt accumulated that's just foolish and ridiculous and is so large that you'll never, no matter how much you try, be able to remove it. And so that's the gospel, right? That you have just accumulated sins. And, and, and it's funny. I mean, we can, we can count up sins and you can like, try to keep track, but you're, just, you're not in right standing with God. That's just what it means to be in debt. To, be, to sin is to miss the mark of righteousness or shalom or holiness or what God has intended. And it is, it is off track and it is sin. And you've accumulated this debt and, and the guy still is trying to pay it back. He's still trying to work it. Like, I can just, just give me a few more days. Just let me make a few more bets. Let me just play more Powerball, right? Like, surely enough Powerball winnings, I'll be able to pay it back, right? It's just foolish. And, and, and we keep trying to think, like, we're, we're going to conjure up this power in our own selves to, 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 to be able to pay off this debt. And it's just foolish. And, and so Jesus, God, he forgives us of our debt, right, through the cross and through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so what happens then is we realize, oh, my gosh, the Lord just paid this a massive debt that, I, that he had no reason to forgive. It was almost foolish on his end. So now, now that I've received that in my heart, how do I respond to somebody else who owes me literally a fraction of that? And if I respond in a malicious, selfish, consumptive way, you don't really understand the gospel. How can you be forgiven that amount and then be mad over $10,000? Like, that, like, you were going to be thrown in jail forever. Your entire family was going to be sold. Like, and, and God, just like that, just freed you from it. And then now you're going to go hold a man in jail because he owes you three months' wages. And so what God is, what God is, is, is implying in this, like Jesus is saying at the end, our Heavenly Father, he's saying, if you don't forgive, you don't understand the gospel. Like, you don't understand, one, the amount of debt that you incurred, two, the fact that you can't pay it back, three, the fact that compassion was given to you 
And four, that that compassion has not transmitted from your heart to an, extensive, to an extension to other people. And so that's why he's saying, like, if you don't forgive others, I won't forgive you because you don't understand the gospel truth. The gospel truth is that you have been immensely forgiven, and out of that forgiveness, you forgive others. If we don't believe that, then we don't forgive. If we have let that seep into our bones, it's, it's far greater and easier for us to forgive because of what we've experienced. Our, one of the scholars that we read a lot um, in Matthew, R.T. France, says it this way. It is because there is no limit to God's generosity to his undeserving people that they in turn cannot claim the right to withhold forgiveness from other disciples. A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. Just think about that. A community of believers that has been forgiven must forgive others. If we are not willing to forgive others, we have a very shallow gospel or a gospel shortage, whatever you want to use. We don't have it. It's not alive among us, right? And that's why Jesus constantly, when you read him, He's like, put my words into practice. Obey my commands. This is, this is one of those components that it's like, if you don't obey it, it's very hard to believe that you'll enjoy the kingdom of God. Because God, when Jesus comes down as the form of a man, right, and he is God with us, he is showing and revealing what his kingdom will be like now and forever, right? And if you are having a very hard time fitting into that, you're, it, it won't make sense for you to be a part of it. The kingdom of God that, that God is that Jesus is revealing is full of right relationships and people actively forgiving, confronting sin, and building up this family intimacy. It's this beautiful thing. It's where people are all in right relationship with God and with each other. And he's saying, if you're not willing to forgive others, you're gonna have a very you're just not gonna fit. It's it's not, I'm not gonna allow unforgiveness to be a part of our my kingdom. It just won't happen. And, and that, that's the heart of God. I mean, this is Jesus, and this is the entire narrative of the Bible. The Bible, from cover to cover, is God wanting to marry us. It's God wanting to be in deep intimacy and relation with us. That's why he gave us the symbol of marriage, why he gave us sex, to point to the depth of intimacy. And that's why at the beginning of the Bible, there's this beautiful oneness that God could just walk around with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was like this idea of shalom, and then they ruin it. And then the end of the Bible is a wedding. It's a wedding feast. It's the bride which is the church, which is believers, marrying the bridegroom, which is Christ. It is us becoming fully one in right relationship with God in the midst of all the mess. And that, that, that wedding banquet is, is God's final combination of like, I am marrying you. And the Bible, the whole story of the Bible is us constantly leaving him at the altar. Like it's us choosing to just go our own way or to not trust his plan or to, or to not really believe that he has our best interest in mind. And we are honestly terrible at practicing forgiveness. And Jesus, time and time again, stays at the altar and he forgives us time and time again. And when he's up on the cross and he's dying for our sins, that is the definition of forgiveness. His last words out of his mouth, when he is dying, when he is being tortured in utmost agony, I can't, I mean, I've put a nail in my hand before. I can't imagine through my veins, right, hanging on it, suffocating, people laughing, you're naked, you're alone, and you, your last words out of your mouth are, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That this is, this is the gospel in the most tangibly, like, flesh way when he not only forgives those around him, he forgives the man in the one, the one um, gospel, forgives the man who was like, forgive me, I'll be with you, you'll be with me in paradise. This is who, this is who forgiveness is, is Jesus literally 
just forgiving up until his death. And so for us, it's like when we understand the gospel, we understand forgiveness. And, and God is saying, look, when you understand this in light of other people, you'll understand the gospel way that I've given you. And so when we start to practice this reality, though, there's two caveats that are really important. And this is why we read uh, like a text at a time, but we've been going through Matthew for like 50 million weeks, and we're going to keep going until Easter. Um, is we want to have this holistic understanding of what Matthew's doing. It's very easy for us to take a scripture, to read it, and just kind of pull it out of the context. And there's nothing wrong with reading the Bible devotionally and having the verse of the day and that type of thing. I'm not saying that's wrong. But a lot of times, there's very provocative things that are being said or Jesus is doing. And we, if, we, if we just pull it out, we're like, well, that's what he did. And it's like, yeah, but that, let's look at that in light of the context, in light of the narrative of what Matthew is doing. And in this scripture, what can be dangerous is that we think forgiveness and receiving consequences are the same thing, and they're not. And what I mean by that is, if you, th- you might think, I have to forgive someone, which means that I have to um, basically ignore or forget or condone or excuse their behavior, and that's not true. Forgiveness is not ignoring, forgetting, condoning, or excusing. Forgiveness is not allowing further abuse. It is not continually setting yourself up to be abused. Forgiveness is also not returning back to the way things were. Forgiveness is not allowing no consequences to occur. So, so just remember that because this passage has been abused for that. And that's where Peter is having tension because he's like, when I confront people, I might be manipulated. Things might not go well. People might disagree. What does it mean in light of forgiveness? How much am I willing to extend this before it just feels like I'm being manipulated or I'm being taken advantage of? And forgiveness in this passage is not those things. Forgiveness is not a responsibility of an action on the other person. And that's the difference between the two of these, and that's where we have to be really careful, is Matthew 15 through 17, when you confront someone, and it doesn't go well, and you bring another brother or sister, and it doesn't go well, and then you bring the whole church, and it doesn't go well, and it says to essentially kind of let them leave or let them, let them hold their own morality, and you can't really, like, they're not a part of a family anymore. Like, they don't hold the standards of following Jesus. Just let them be, Right? It is not saying then that you just always forgive them and they just keep abusing you and stepping on you, right? There's, there's a sense of boundaries, and I talked about this last week, how Jesus had boundaries. He had specific things he would say and communicate with his three. He had specific things like he would explain parables to his 12. He had said specific things to a group of the downcast and the trodden. He said specific things and had boundaries with the Pharisees. And then he had a specific boundaries with him and the Father. So Jesus had boundaries. Boundaries are biblical. Boundaries are important. It doesn't mean that someone wrongs us. We forgive them and we just let them keep just abusing us. We are not to be doormats, okay? But when you put the two of these 15 through 17 confrontation and forgiveness together, you have this beautiful marrying of what it means to keep pursuing people in light of your own heart. Because forgiveness, what he says at the end is forgive in your heart. Forgiveness is really more about you than it is the other person. I don't know if you know that to be true. Like when you are building resentment and you can't forgive someone or an event or maybe you can't forgive God about something, like it is eating you up. It is causing you energy. It is causing anxiety and doubt. It is building resentment and bitterness. It is affecting the way that you love other people. So forgiveness is far more about you than it is about the other person. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, if somebody wants to leave the church and they, they whatever, they have this sin or, or they just don't agree, we don't like excommunicate them, but there's boundaries that need to be set up. But that doesn't mean that you don't not forgive them for that. Does that make sense? So if somebody sins, let's say they, they just say something mean to someone, and we're like, hey, that's not okay. We go through the process, and you're like, I don't care. I'm going to say whatever I want, right? And they like leave. That doesn't mean that that person who's been wrong still doesn't need to forgive them. Now, that does mean that maybe they don't let them, like they don't have, bound, they have boundaries that don't just let them keep getting abused, right? But this is the reality of forgiveness. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's like, Peter, 
you're around a group of guys that you disagree with, that you struggle with, the whole group is going to have problems. We're human. We rub shoulders long enough. You will say something that is dumb. I joke like, I, I'm up here long enough. If you're here long enough, you'll hear me say something stupid. We have a folder of those things on the computer that we save for some event. I have no idea when that will be released. But if I hang out with you, you will, you, will, you will eventually be a human sinner, and I will see it. You will only be able to date me for so long before I realize you have dirt, just like everybody else, right? And in that, how do we handle being wrong? How do we handle forgiveness? And Jesus is like, it is an unlimited thing. And, and so I, I want to get to what forgiveness is, because I think that's what we're trying to formulate. If we have to give unlimited forgiveness, what is forgiveness? And I, I use the, the terminology of Jesus in like his last moment, and I think that is the best definition. It is What Jesus is doing is he is relinquishing his right to retaliate. Forgiveness, I, I think it most accurately put, is relinquishing your own right to retaliate. It's saying, this is out of my hands. If, there is aven- if I avenge or there's revenge or whatever, it is not up to me, it is up to God. And you relinquish your ability to try to become fair or right or make things okay, right? Like, but it, it's your own heart desire. It's not like you projecting and expecting something in return, right? How often have you went to go seek forgiveness and then they like didn't really give it back and then you're kind of mad? It's like, well, you didn't really forgive them. Like Your forgiveness was conditional on their, their apology or their sorry, and that's not how forgiveness works. Forgiveness is you and your heart releasing control and being like, it's okay that, like, Jesus, I'm naked around everyone and they're all making fun of me and I still can forgive them. I can relinquish my own pride, my own influence. I can be like a little one and I can just let it, I can just let it over to the Lord. I can just trust that, like, this is not my battle. This is exhausting for me to hold internally. And and I think that there's no better story of this than um, uh, there was a, uh, a killing in 2018, September, a Dallas police officer off-duty went into the wrong apartment, alleged that it was her own, and fatally shot Botham Jean while watching TV and eating ice cream. I don't know if maybe you've heard this story. This was like four years, five, five years ago, four or five years ago. After the trial and sentencing, Botham's younger brother, Brant, had the opportunity to take the stand and give a victim impact statement. So this had been like a year, you know, he, his brother had been shot and killed, and the trials just take a long time. There's just like a lot of moving pieces, and a year went by that he had to live in the, the suffering of this, dealing with this, like, the trial of justice, right? Like, will justice be served, whatever, and try to figure out what is justice, and that's our court system, right, trying to figure that out. And the whole time he talks about how he was so angry, and how he would even tell his friends, like, I wanted to kill her. Like, I was so mad at her, and I was so angry, and I wanted to get revenge, and I wanted, and he just had this anxiety and this anger and this bitterness, which, like, we're all like, yeah, like, rightly so, like, for sure. And whether, we're not going to get into the politics of, like, you know, the case and all that, but... But he says this in his opportunity. He says that he was, you know, angry and wanted revenge until he heard her apologize. And then he let it all out and he said this. If you, are tr- if you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself that I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself and not on behalf of my family. But I love you just like anybody else. I'm not going to say, I hope you rot and die like my brother did, but I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. 
And this is a photo of the moment where after that he says, can I, can I hug her? And the judge allows her to come forward. You know, I mean, she's already been sentenced. She's doing years in prison. And he gets to hug the woman who shot his brother. And I just think about, I mean, it's, you can watch the video. It's incredibly emotional and powerful. I'm not even doing you justice just reading the transcript. But, like, I just picture myself being that, that woman receiving that forgiveness and whether, like, she did it maliciously or not, I'm not, it's not for debate, I'm not trying to be political here, but you, you, you did this thing, and you deserve consequences, and for the, the brother of that to just, like, I love you, I forgive you, and I, I want to I make things right on my end. Like, I can't imagine how, like, it just, it just wrecks you. It would wreck you. I mean, imagine if, like, if you just, like, you know, you, you've experienced radical generosity where someone just like gave you a car or gave you money or bought some meal or did something just extremely generous. You're just like, I don't even know how to, I don't know where to put my hands. Like, I just, I'm so like, what do I do, right? Like, this makes me feel awkward. And th- this proves it because when he did this, a lot of people were really angry at him. A lot of the black community were mad because they felt like they were minimizing the black on white crime. And a lot of people were mad that they felt like it was too soon and that he couldn't have, he, there's no way he could have forgiven her. His heart could not have been right. And, and so he's taking all this criticism for, like, for doing what Jesus would do. And I think that's the power of forgiveness. People don't understand it because it is so countercultural to our world. Right? Like, what do you mean you don't want her in jail? She does, are you kidding me? Like, what do you mean? Right? But then you read the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is like, look, if someone takes your cloak, give them your tunic too. And you're like, what do you mean, Jesus? If somebody slaps you, give them your other cheek. And you're like, what do you mean? This doesn't make any sense. Aren't I going to get abused? Right? And remember, I said, you're not a doormat. You're not just like... It's the principle behind, I am not the God, and I am not in charge of revenge. And if I try to, I will be exhausted. And I will be spiritually missing the gospel. There's a book called The Art of Forgiving, uh, Art Forgiving by Lewis Smeedy. And he has three components of, of changing our heart towards the offender of, of this unforgiveness. And these are the three, and it's funny how they kind of follow the reality of this parable. The first one is that you remember that God has forgiven you. And this is the gospel, this is the bread and cup that we take every Sunday as we remind ourselves we have a debt that is unpayable on our own accord. And you can try and be a good person all you want, but it will not match up. The scales will never be flipped in, in God's eyes. And, and you, you have a debt that has been forgiven because of God has forgiven you. Then the second step is you rediscover their humanity. I think this is incredibly important. You realize that they are a human, which means two things. One, that they are a sinner and they make mistakes just like you and anyone else. Number two is they're still made in the image of God and they deserve honor and dignity and respect. That's very hard when you villainize people and you create enemies, right? And I think that there's nothing more powerful than imagining in this moment, like Brand, has, he, you are just like everyone else. I love you like anyone else. Like he is seeing her humanity and not allowing the evil thing that had occurred and had happened in the world that we live in to affect his ability to love and forgive her. And then the third thing is that you offer compassion instead of hate, that your heart is truly in a, in a, a place of forgiveness, which means that you're not allowed to do like, like half forgiveness, right? Like, oh, yeah, like I'm fine. If there's still resentment and bitterness and anger in your heart, you have not forgiven them. If your heart is not able to be freed from that, you have not forgiven them. Some of you maybe have not even forgiven God for something. You're like angry at him that you feel like he allowed something to happen or did something to you or your family or, and you, you're trying to move on from it but you are still bitter and you are still angry. You have not forgiven God about that thing. If you have someone in your family who has done something wrong to you or continually done something wrong or continually does it still, right? 
Like, and you have anger and bitterness and resentment towards them. You have not forgiven them, even if you've told them you forgive them. If your heart is not free, if it is not right relationship pursuing them, then you're missing freedom in forgiveness. And like I said, for, for forgiveness is not like not caring about consequences. It's not letting them off the hook. It is you submitting your ability to retaliate to the Lord. And so as we close today, um, we always have a time of, we call it formation, where there's like four things that we want you to practically engage with to become more like Jesus. And so the four of those are um, prayer, bread and cup. You can put the slide up, Hannah. Prayer, bread and cup, uh, giving, and then also just reflection, right? Like internalizing, eating the message, right? Internalizing. And uh, you can partake in these at any time. But what I want us to actually focus on first, and I'm going to let us do this, spend a few minutes, and then you can start doing the other stuff if you'd like, is I want us to actually pray beside each other, or there's any people in the back who would pray for you. Pray with someone um, about forgiveness. Is there someone that you need to forgive, that you need strength for, that you need the Spirit's clarity for? Is there, is there areas that your just heart has been bitter? Is there something you need to be freed from? I didn't mention this in the first service, but I think that there's a reality that maybe you are mad at you. You're not forgiving yourself. Like there is this, there's a, this inkling in your heart that you're angry at yourself, that you think you deserve something. Like Sarah talked a little about her story. Like there is this way that you're not willing to forgive. Maybe you're angry at God. You're not willing to forgive God. Would you just pray with someone on that and just take that time and pray with that person and allow them to just, as a family, like just bring our, our, our lack of forgiveness to the Lord and let the Spirit work in that. And here's what I think will happen. I think our community will be strengthened in forgiveness, right? And that we will understand the gospel in a deeper way and that we will be able to love each other better because of it. So we'll give you a few minutes to do that. And then at any point, if you want, you can come up and take the bread and cup, which is a sacrifice, a reminder of Jesus and his forgiveness. And then giving is an act of worship and reflection also. And then the band will come up and we'll close in one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.